I think that mandated reporting is one of the biggest challenges that we're facing in prison abolition right now, personally, because I think that while we are working on defund and reinvest, that we're reinvesting in social work and that a lot of social work becomes carceral because it has to use the family regulation system or mandated reporting by law. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. My name is Sheila Vicaria. I am a collaborator with the Network to Advance Abolitionist Social Work, also known as NAASW. And so on behalf of my NAASW collaborators, I welcome you. To tell you a little bit about us, um, our network is a group of social workers from different parts of the U.S. for building a a year-long initiative to support abolitionist work in the field of social work. The initiative includes ongoing political education, research, and knowledge generation around carceral and abolition social work, developing an online hub of abolitionist social work resources, and broader organizing and advocacy efforts to insert abolitionist ideas and practices into social work. In recognition of March as Social Work Month, we hosted a series of Twitter chats and IG lives from our social media accounts, and you are welcome to follow us on either Twitter or Instagram at abolitionist. And you are also invited to live tweet this event using the hashtag AbolitionistSW and to tag us and Haymarket in your comments and discussion. We also have a website that you are welcome to visit, NAASW.com, where you can learn more about our group. It is my pleasure to introduce you to our speaker and discussant today, Shira Hassan. Shira is an organizer with nearly 25 years of experience. She is the former director of the Young Women's Empowerment Project where the participatory evaluation that she co-designed and implemented was recognized by the United Nations as part of its universal periodic review of the U.S. treatment of people in the sex trade in 2009. Shira has focused on the experiences of girls, boys, transgender, queer, and queer youth involved in the sex trade and street economy and has stabled four syringe exchanges expressively for young people in the sex trade and transgender people. She has trained and spoken nationally on transformative justice, harm reduction, and leadership development of young people of color. And her work has been discussed on NPR, the New York Times, and a number of other notable outlets. Along with Miriam Kaba, she is co-author of Fumbling Towards Repair, a workbook for community accountability facilitators. And she currently teaches in the Graduate School of Social Work at both the University of Chicago and the University of uh, Washington. And she received her master's in social work from New York University in 2002. And before I pass the mic to Shira, I'd like to take a moment just to recognize the significance of her talk today and us gathering in this moment in light of everything that's been happening in just the past several days, weeks, and months. Today is March 31st. It is the last day of Social Work Month, and it also is the last day of Women's History Month, both months in which we 
share and reflect upon our histories um, and including in, at times our whitewashed histories, which can mean that sometimes there are untold, untold stories that go by that do not really validate or acknowledge the contributions of black and brown women and social workers. And today is also the trans day of visibility, um, a time when we should all think about and amplify and give platforms to our trans siblings particularly our Black, Brown, and non-citizen siblings as they strive for equity, justice, and liberation today, but every day. And just this past week, the passage of legislation in Georgia that actually harms and threatens the lives of our trans youth simply reminds us that we must commit to fight every day and we are complicit if and when we remain silent. Um, I'd also want to acknowledge that in response, including just yesterday, we have also seen an escalation in violent attacks against our East Asian and Pacific Islander siblings, occurring also oftentimes at the intersection of gender, citizenship, ageism, and anti-sex work hate. We are in the midst of, a, of, of day three of a murder trial of an officer who killed George Floyd, and we are in the midst of a, of a reckoning as a nation about whether our police truly are reformable and what our visions of justice and public safety actually should be. And lastly, Shira's talk is also happening at a pivotal moment as people who use drugs are dying of overdose nationally unprecedented rates with disproportionate impact on communities of color. Our systems have continued to fail to respond accordingly. So within the context of all of this, Shira's work with mutual aid and communities who have provided for themselves in direct response to the state, our other systems and structures and many other um, communities that have actually harmed or failed to protect, protect those who are most vulnerable. I think her work can provide us lessons in this moment. So without further ado, I will now pass the microphone to Shira for her presentation, which will be for roughly one hour, and then we will open up for audience questions at the end. Please feel free to add your questions to the chat, and we will try to get as many as possible. Thank you. Shira? Hi, thank you so much, Sheila. That was really great context for us to drop into for this talk. Um, I um, just need to ask a quick tech question about where my slides are. So while the slides are coming, I want to introduce myself a little bit. Um, that introduction was sort of the um, the like my my big girl introduction, like my my grown up introduction. And I want to um, just sort of help you understand the context under which I came into learning about harm reduction and why for me harm reduction is um, something that I believe is um, innate to people in the sex trade, to drug users, and to a long history of Black, Indigenous, people of color, liberation movements. So um, I have a little bit of a unique history in harm reduction um, in some way or in social work um, because I came in as a young person in harm reduction. So um, my um, first experience with harm reduction was as someone who was sleeping rough in New York City in the late 80s. And someone gave me a clean syringes. And those clean syringes began um, a, a lifetime of um, 
really helping me understand who I am in the world. And you would think that something as simple as someone handing you clean syringes wouldn't be that kind of wake up. Um, But it wasn't for me a wake up call around getting clean and sober. It was more of a um, calling card into um, learning more about my history and who I am. And that um, moment opened up a huge range of options for me because that um, person who, who gave me clean syringes, um, was, was an activist who was running, um, kind of like it wasn't exactly, well, I guess it was an illegal exchange. It was an unsanctioned exchange. There weren't really legal exchanges at the time. And she was doing outreach, um, in Thompson square park, which is where I was sleeping and where I was trading sex for money. And after that, Um, I received outreach from a project that I hope everyone in the world knows called the Streetwork Project in New York City, um, which will always be a really important home for me. And that outreach worker had so many skills and really helped me figure out what my path was. And if it wasn't for her um, using harm reduction as a practice beyond just outreach supplies, I wouldn't have ever found my way to college, let alone social work school. And after, at that moment, that was my, my entry point to, um, peer led work. And I believe firmly that harm reduction is a peer-led movement. Um, I'm right now working on a book that will be out Um, on Haymarket Press sometime in the next year on on harm reduction. And it's called Saving Our Own Lives, A Liberatory Practice of Harm Reduction. And a piece of this talk will be included in that book. And some of it you're just going to have to buy. But one of the the reasons um, that I want to write this book is not only to thank um, the people who invested in me, their time and effort and energy, but also to really help people understand harm reduction as a critical tool and seed for so many other um, movements that are happening right now. Um, So harm reduction is the basis for, is one of the critical basis of, for example, healing justice. It's also the missing ingredient in so much prison abolition and transformative justice work. It's an enormous part of reproductive justice work. And so I really want people to understand that it's not that harm reduction informed those other movements. It's that harm reductionists, because people in the sex trade, because drug users, because black indigenous people of color who are working towards liberation are a part of all of those movements, that means that harm reduction is also. And what I really want is for social workers not only to understand the difference between how public health has um, really um, 
co-opted harm reduction. And I also want uh, social workers to understand how they can um, begin to see themselves in a larger movement that uses harm reduction as a strategy towards abolition. I also want people in abolition and in transformative justice practice to understand that harm reduction is often the unnamed missing ingredient. So I'm going to talk through what is harm reduction, how do we practice it, and then we'll get into some specific challenges um, for social workers. So I need to take a quick second to pull my slides up because I lost um, the thread that I wasn't going to be able to see them. So it'll just take one second. So I want to take us on a little bit of a journey around the history of harm reduction. All of uh, a dear friend of mine, Viva Ruiz, who started the project, Thank God from Abortion, for Abortion, often says that everything she learned about organizing, she learned in the clubs. And for me, everything I learned about transformative justice, prison abolition, and harm reduction, I learned from being in the sex trade and from other sex workers. So all of my definitions and all of my frame of reference is um, via that. And I want to say that one of the really important things, a personal mission of mine, is to help people understand that harm reduction did not spring fully formed from the veins of white male needle users in the 80s, that it had a really critical political context that people who've been working towards collective liberation for Black, Indigenous people of color um, had been creating for years, which is part of how that moment galvanized. And I also really want people to understand and see the really critical lineage that sex workers play in the strategy surrounding prison abolition, transformative justice, and harm reduction. I also just want to take a second before we get too much into this to um, thank you for all of the discomfort that may emerge from some of the conversations we're about to have, I believe really strongly that discomfort is our biggest teacher. I also wanna take a moment to acknowledge that I personally would not be here without the investment in my mentors and without the, in, the investment that my mentors made in me and without the investment of so many ancestors. And I really view harm reduction as a love letter from our ancestors about how to survive. Could you switch to the next slide? So you should be seeing um, Young Women's Empowerment Project in front of you. Young Women's Empowerment Project is um, one of um, my home projects. It's a project that was started in 2002 that, is, uh, that was led by and for young people of color in the sex trade and street economy. It was not a social service. There were no social workers there. And the purpose of our project was to transform the way that Chicago sees and treats street-based young people, young people in the sex trade and street economy, and to make sure that our communities had the information that we needed about critical life-saving supplies and practices. So 
The definition that YWIP used was harm reduction means that we give practical options, no judgments, and we respect the choices that girls make. We will work with any girl to find resources that she thinks will be helpful to her. We believe that girls do what they have to do to survive, and we don't question why anyone is involved in the sex trade or street economy. Instead, we ask what they think they need to feel safe, supported, and taken care of. Harm reduction means finding safer ways to practice risky behavior. We define risk as anything that might put you in harm's way. That could be violence, that could be police, that could be STDs, that could be theft, that could be depression. These are all examples of harmful things that could be avoided with information and support. Sometimes there's no way to avoid those things and that's nobody's fault. We help girls take responsibility for their actions and their choices by having honest conversation about risk and ways to avoid risk. We also believe that harm reduction is a philosophy that can work for any circumstance, not just high risk. For example, wearing a seatbelt is harm reduction. Taking a day off of work to sleep and relax when you're really stressed out is harm reduction too. The ways we offer practical harm reduction solutions at YWEP is offering realistic information and education about drugs and the sex trade to anyone who needs it. We often we offer syringe exchange for hormones and drugs to anyone who wants it. We give condoms, lubes, safer piercing kits to anyone who wants it. We offer birth control and abortion information. We help people find whatever information or resources they might need, like a testing kit for ecstasy or naloxone to reverse an opiate overdose. We give legal information about people's rights. We stress self-care, healing justice, empowerment, and incorporate these values into our program. So I want to name that this project closed in 2013. And it became a really important project called Street Youth Rise Up, which was the name of our campaign. And if we have time, I'll tell you a little bit about what a harm reduction based campaign looks like, um, because it is really different than legislative advocacy. I also want to remind you um, that Young Women's Empowerment Project was led by and for young people who were currently involved in the sex trade and street economy. And so everything I just shared with you was their writing and was their definitions. I want to move on to um, give you a definition from another organization that is very close to my heart called the Native Youth Sexual Health Network. And I dropped, I hope that there's a link that um, is coming up in the chat. If you could advance the slide, um, you'll be able to see their website. So um, Native Youth Sexual Health Network is um, a project of indigenous young people that exists throughout the upper Midwest and into Canada. And um, this is a project that was really close with Young Women's Empowerment Project. We did a lot of our work together. And um, Native Youth Sexual Health Network was also a group that 
um, did a lot of critical work on missing, murdered, and indigenous women. Their article, Indigenizing Harm Reduction, I think is one of the most important reads for harm reductionists and abolitionists. Um, uh, Native Youth Sexual Health Network defines harm reduction as keeping each other safe while using substances or having sex, but also thinks of harm reduction as a daily practice that lots of people use to reduce the everyday risks and harms while trying to create some safety in unsafe situations. This can apply to individual things we do, but also to systems and structures and realities that we face like racism, colonialism, and sexism that actually make our lives less safe. We created the indigenizing harm reduction model as an attempt to address how mainstream harm reduction practices aren't all there is to choose from and how different indigenous communities can reclaim self-determination over health and our bodies. So I love, like, not only do I love these definitions because they were written by and for the young people who use them, but I also find that one of the most frustrating parts of being not only in social work, but also in the harm reduction world is how quickly people have co-opted definitions of harm reduction to focus only on individual behavior change and have really left the um, bigger picture about what systemic change means and looks like. And it's interesting because while many of you may know of harm reduction through public health or through social service as something um, that really values being non-judgmental, when we focus on individual behavior change as opposed to systemic change, we're actually basically blaming people um, and saying that, for example, um, at YWEP, we used to repeatedly say that the sex trade has nothing to do with what one young person does or doesn't do. The sex trade is about a system of power and it's about a system of oppression. And so if we're only focused on, for example, one strategy like exiting the sex trade, then we're ignoring not only the reality of young people's lives, but also the reality of institutional and systemic violence. So these definitions really get at some of those points. So I want to keep panning back a little bit and give you one last definition. If you could advance the slide, please. This is a definition that I've been working with that we work with at Just Practice. Um, and I have been tweaking and changing this definition. So I'm really excited to um share future definitions with you. Harm reduction is a philosophy and a set of practical empowerment-based strategies designed to reduce the harm from risks associated with drug use, sex, the sex trade, sex work, self-injury, eating disorders, violence, policing, etc. It centers individual and collective models of care that gets us closer to liberation and a safer world. So what I want to also just say is that 
this concept of what is high risk and what risk even means has been distorted over time. So when um, harm reduction activists in the 80s were pushing for departments of public health to revise their policies and start including peer-led syringe exchange work and other peer-to-peer work in how we were addressing the spread of HIV and AIDS, risk was defined as someone who was at risk for HIV or at risk for um, contracting hepatitis C. Um, Actually, even at that time, hepatitis C wasn't one of the main purposes of harm reduction. We didn't really even understand how it was spread at that point. So it was primarily around HIV and AIDS. And so risk for HIV and AIDS became how so much of how public health organized harm reduction um, and reorganized how we understood risk. Uh, reorganized how we talked about who was high risk and who wasn't. In reality, the language of risk is highly stigmatizing and it's really based on um, racist and colonialist notions, not only of safety, but also whose bodies are whole, whose body, like there's all this purity politic in it. There's a lot of um, individualizing that, public health does to the model of harm reduction that includes even the language of risk to begin with. So, so much of the work that I've been doing and so much of the work um, that the communities that I've been a part of since the late 80s have been doing has been to push harm reduction into public health insofar as funding, but to also push public health to understand its individualistic and colonialist views and to sort of stop looking at people in the sex trade and drug users and people of color and black indigenous people of color in general as data mines that our bodies can provide information. I think the current pandemic is also a really critical time to be talking about harm reduction. And it's this rare gift that we are able to have such a rich discussion about harm reduction and abolition in the context of a pandemic, because harm reduction really galvanized in the 80s, which was the most another pandemic (laughs) that we were experiencing. And Black, Indigenous, people of color communities who were moving in um, such intentional and liberatory ways to interrupt the spread of HIV AIDS were also being simultaneously targeted, not only by criminalizing forces um, like police and housing authorities, but also by public health who were tracking our bodies and mining our bodies and our communities for data. And we're seeing that now as well, um, where we're seeing um the linking between criminalization and public health as this real hands in hand thing. 
And what breaks my heart is that people um, want to try to people in public health now trying to use harm reduction as a as a tool for that. And in the early days, we were using harm reduction to interrupt criminalization. We were using harm reduction to interrupt systemic oppression around housing and to interrupt um, systemic racism around health care. So let's get into that a little bit. All right. So again, you know, people often think that harm reduction formed in the 80s as a response to the HIV AIDS epidemic. And that is absolutely a time when it galvanized. But let's actually go back to what formed um, harm reduction. So if you could um, advance the slide. So One of the critical places that we can look to, to help us understand, I have a dog here in front of me whose little paws keep touching the mouse and just ever so gently taking me away from the screen I'm on. So one of the critical pieces that we need to understand in order to really um, locate how harm reduction um, was able to galvanize in the moment of HIV AIDS in the 80s is to remember the critical work and the critical groundwork that the Black Panther Party was laying. Um, Monique Tula, I dropped a link um, for you all to read this article that she wrote. And an expanded version of this will be in the book that I was talking about called Saving Our Own Lives. Um, Wrote this really beautiful piece around how the Black Panther Party began to sow the seeds of harm reduction in the 70s. And I'll read a small excerpt from this piece. In the original harm reductionist, tired of waiting to be saved or treated with equity, the Black Panthers brought a new message of self-determination. Beginning in Oakland, the Panthers began serving full free breakfast to children. Soon they were serving 20,000 school-aged children in 19 cities around the country and in 23 local affiliates every school day. In 1972, Elaine Brown updated the Black Panther Party manifesto to include an explicit demand for free health care for all Black and oppressed people. First and foremost, the Panthers advocated for preventive health care and noted the importance of health literacy to the overall vitality of poor Black people of color. We believe that the government must provide free of charge for the people health facilities, which will not only treat our illnesses, most of which have come about as a result of our oppression, but which will also develop preventative medical programs to guarantee our future survival. We believe that mass health education and research programs must be developed to give Black and oppressed people access to advanced scientific and medical information so that we may provide ourselves with proper medical attention and care. Nothing about us without us. I think that Not only is this like one critical moment of laying the foundation for how harm reduction develops, but what happened next 
um, was the joining, if you could advance the slide, please, of the Black Panther Party and the Young Lords for the Lincoln Hospital um, takeover and the forming of the Lincoln Detox Center. So um, in the 70s, um, Lincoln Hospital, which still exists in the South Bronx in New York, um, was a place that was just honestly called the butcher shop because so many people died there and people who worked there were so disregarded and treated so poorly. The Young Lords began a campaign through the education and outreach of nurses and orderlies to try to unionize and organize inside Lincoln Hospital. But there was a particular event that sparked the takeover, which was a botched abortion that led to the death of um, a young woman in her early 30s. And the very next day, the young lords marched into the hospital and held it, um, held the hospital um, in lockdown and um were ultimately successful because not only did they have done years of building with employees of the hospital who helped with the takeover, but also because of critical alliances that they built throughout the South Bronx. And one of those critical alliances was with the Black Panther Party. The Black Panther Party had also been looking at lots of alternative strategies for addressing addiction and healthcare. Um, and addiction was one of the main um, things that the young lords were most concerned with because there was very little, if any, drug treatment. So when the Lincoln Hospital negotiations began, one of the things that the young lords demanded was that there be a creation of a detox center that became the people's drug program. And Dr. Matulu Shakur, who's still in prison and quite ill, and who was targeted as a part of Pro, and part of how, unfortunately, the Lincoln Hospital takeover, which did in the moment end in success, ultimately is no longer what it was at the time because of how Pro played out and was targeted against the Black Panther Party, the Young Lords, and everyone involved in the Lincoln Hospital takeover. So for a short, brief period of time, Lincoln Hospital was this community-run, politicized place of healthcare and healing that was really a primary example of a healing justice and harm reduction campaign. Um, one of the things that Dr. Matulu Shakur created was a detox acupuncture protocol. And that acupuncture protocol is something that many of you who are in harm reduction may have learned. It personally impacted me because when I went to Lincoln Hospital to learn um, the detox protocol in the early 90s, there were still several of the original people who were part of the takeover and part of developing the protocol still teaching. And so I got to learn how to 
not only receive acupuncture, but also to teach acupuncture. And one of the most, I would say, game-changing impacts of that, not only um, nationally in harm reduction, but also on an individual level, was putting healthcare back into the hands of drug users and putting healthcare um, policy into the hands of community. And so that happened and was flourishing. Um, Lincoln Hospital was flourishing throughout the 70s. And so as HIV AIDS began to take root, we really had gotten so many critical wins and we had so much critical analysis among black indigenous people of color that when syringe exchange came along as an idea, it just not only made sense, but it really, that was the foundation for how those ideas even came around to begin with. So I want to, um, if you could switch the slide, I want to also talk for a minute about the importance of um, STAR. And STAR was a group that was film, uh, formed by Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera in the late 80s. and. What I think, you know, is this is like, um, in some ways, I always feel like this is a little known fact, but I don't know why it's a little known fact that both of these women were diehard harm reductionists, because every single piece of work and organizing that they ever did was a harm reduction strategy. And they were very explicit about that. So I never got the chance to meet Marsha P. Johnson. She died in 92. I would hear about her everywhere, though, as a young person. But I did um, get the chance to know Sylvia, and she was a harm reduction all day long. And the two of them started housing projects. Um, there was um, places for people in the sex trade and street economy and for trans sex workers to sleep anywhere that they were. And so they also, I want to say, um, not only housed and figured out ways of caring for people in the sex trade and street economy and caring for and investing in the leadership development and safety of trans people, but they also were really thoughtful in general about the critical overlap between the sex trade and trans people's lived experience. And so I, I was even someone that they made space for, you know, um, when I struggled with housing. So I think that we really, lose sight of all of the different ways that people have practiced um, liberation strategies. And we also lose sight of the way that harm reduction has played a critical role in um, bringing us to the moment that happens next, which is the galvanization of the harm reduction movement via syringe exchanges. What I want to um, bring us to is a conversation about what harm reductionists believe in. And here's the thing about harm reduction is that what we believe and the values of harm reduction are almost more important than the definitions or even the strategies. Because if we understand what the values of harm reduction are, 
is, we can always come up with the next strategy together. The values are the most critical part of how we get to strategy. And they're the most critical part of how we keep practicing together. So if you could advance the slide. So the frameworks are really critical. So the um, there uh, should be on your screen a list of what these critical values and frameworks are. Harm reduction is by definition anti-capitalist. Why? Because our bodies belong to us. No one owns our health. No one owns our health care. And because so much of harm reduction work has historically and importantly been illegal and therefore difficult to pay for. Harm reduction absolutely believes in a challenge against the medical industrial complex. The medical industrial complex is one of the most critical components of capitalism. So in order for harm reduction to really thrive in its whole form, it has to be at least in part driven by an anti-capitalist framework. Harm reduction is also by definition anti-carceral. And what's really critical about this is that one of the greatest, if not the greatest threats to public health are prisons and policing. And so if harm reduction isn't led with an anti-carceral framework, then I just have some critical questions about the loop that's getting set up there. I have to tell you that harm reductionist has to be anti-racist, colonialist, pro-indigenous, and anti-border in order for harm reduction to be real. Now, if you're telling me that you know of an incredible, enormous syringe exchange that distributes thousands of syringes a year and never even heard of colonialism because that's just not their orientation to syringe distribution. And then if you ask me if I believe that's a harm reduction project, I will say that that is a harm reduction project of public health, right? Like that's a public health intervention that I believe is critical and everyone should get access to that mass distribution of syringes. But I will tell you that it is not a practice of what I believe is liberatory harm reduction and that I have critical questions about what the basis of the work is that you're doing if you're not also organizing towards our collective liberation. Body autonomy, self-determination, and disability justice are also the cornerstones of harm reduction. And I want to just invite you to remember the ways in which disability, the ways in which self-determination, the ways in which body autonomy play out in the lives of people in the sex trade 
play out of in the lives of drug users. And if harm reduction is led by us and for us, which I personally believe there really shouldn't be people inside harm reduction, leading harm reduction work who don't have life experience um, with criminalized with being a criminalized survivor. I understand my own experience in the world is as a criminalized survivor, as someone who grew up with domestic violence, as someone who grew up being targeted by um, police because of my involvement in the sex trade, because I was a drug user, and because it's illegal to not be housed when you're under 18 in most cities. And so because so many of us are criminalized survivors in harm reduction, self-determination, body autonomy, and disability justice are some of the most critical pieces of harm reduction. I really just want to say this, I want to make this point just a little longer, because as you're thinking about prison abolition, and as you're thinking about how this all intersects, and I know that so many people are talking about how to use transformative justice in social work practice, I think it's really important that we remember that the only way that we can be accountable is if we are empowered. And what empowerment means is being in control of your own choices. And so if we aren't in control of our own choices, if, for example, you're in some sort of mandated program around drug use or you're in a mandated program around the sex trade, you don't have self-determination. And if you are also like, for example, being asked to or required to participate in some sort of community accountability process, that requirement by definition undermines empowerment and it undermines self-determination. So I want to just, um, of the rest of these frameworks, take a moment to highlight um, how important trans justice is to prison abolition and to harm reduction. Without justice for trans people, there is no harm reduction. There is no prison abolition. There is no transformative justice. And as far as I'm concerned, there is no justice in your social work practice if you're not centering the critical role that trans people play in leading this work. So the practices that harm reduction uses, and then we're going to give some examples of strategies, these practices are so important, right? Like we have to practice that change isn't linear, that healing isn't linear. One of the things that gets really complicated about this, especially inside public health and social work, is for whatever reason, grants have decided that change is linear, happens in 12-month cycles, and can be measured. The reality is that in harm reduction, we know that change is not a straight line. And so this is one of the really fascinating contradictions between what happened when public health sort of co-opted social work is that the decision that an individual behavior change that happened on a 12-month cycle is the only way that something can be funded as harm reduction, which is 
is just so many levels of ludicrous. It's difficult to describe because the principle, one of the key principle foundations is that healing isn't linear, that change isn't linear, and that all of these other things kind of have to come first. The, the next piece is also a huge challenge, both in social work and in public health, which is that relationship is everything. And I want to sort of outline the three layers of relationship that have to be alive in harm reduction for this practice to be liberatory. One is that we have to understand the individual's relationship to whatever the thing is that they're doing. So my relationship to the sex trade is what defines whether or not it's safe or unsafe, not that the sex trade exists at all, right? The sex trade at all is a thing. My relationship to it is what defines whether or not I'm safe, unsafe, risk, not at risk. The second thing is, is that my relationship to my community is the most important piece of how I stay safe and alive. And then my relationship to you, if you are an outside service provider or you are a social worker, is another really critical layer where you may see issues with this is that this means that relationships have to be more important than the rules. It has to be more important than the rule of a program or if we lose, because otherwise we lose people. And not only when we lose people, we lose people in huge ways. We lose them to death. We lose them to prisons. We lose them to policing. And that's completely unacceptable. So for harm reduction to thrive, relationship has to be the centerpiece of how we understand someone's entire life. Harm reduction ultimately believes that healing happens in relationship and that the only way to really be in a um, truly um, kind of like whole, I guess holistic is the word, is to be um, engaged in healing oriented healing um it, to be gaze, to be engaged in relationships that understand that that is the most important piece so i want to um get to some of these cuz i just out of the corner of my eye saw the time and i want to be sure that um i can name some of these i want to name that um the person or the culture having the answers is a really critical part of harm reduction. This gets left out all the time. Um, we like to think that we agree that the person has the answers and the person is the expert, but we only think that's true when we like the answers. The other piece is that it has to be liberatory based. It has to be reality based. And what reality based means is not distorting someone's current for the future. So not sort of saying what happens tomorrow is more important than what happens today. Um, uh, example of this, even though I am, um, a long time 12 step member, I guess, of multiple 12 step groups, the way, and actually I believe there's a lot of overlap between harm reduction and 12 step that neither group likes to talk about, but that's a whole nother presentation and a whole nother uh, conversation. 
But 12 step tends to be out of sync with someone's reality because it's asking someone to focus on sobriety as the primary goal. Harm reduction says that sobriety, healing, and recovery are three separate concepts. They can align. You can have healing. You can have healing without sobriety, and you can have healing without recovery. And the same goes for all three. You can have recovery without feeling healing. You can have recovery without experiencing sobriety. And you probably know the the joke inside 12 step that you can absolutely have sobriety without recovery. So these concepts have to be separated in order for things to be reality based. The last thing I want to say I've already said, um, which is that the it's critically important that harm reduction be peer to peer. And this is not like the A student leading the F student. This is people in the life working and supporting people in the life. And that is another concept that's often lost through social work and public health. Could you advance the slide? So I want to give you the exa- uh, some examples of how you may run into some of this. And one of the things that you may encounter the most when you think about harm reduction programs is syringe and naloxone distribution. All syringe exchanges should include hormone distribution. Otherwise, I I don't get it, but okay. I mean, it happens. Bad date sheets, which are are one of the cornerstones of transformative justice practice, which were something that were created by people in the sex trade in order to track dangerous Johns. Squatting, warm lines, 911 alternatives. The concept of safety planning was something that people got from harm reduction and people in the sex trade and domestic violence. Um, And pregnant and parent in high schools, so many more. Could you advance the slide, please? So I want to talk for a hot second, and I say a hot second because I know that so many of you are educated about the impact of the war on drugs, but I want to just say that so many programs, both social work programs, harm reduction programs, public health, have forgotten that the war on drugs is the root cause of so much harm and is the justification for prisons and policing in so many ways. And I also just want to name that one in five people um, is locked up for a drug offense, but that the carceral state has a reach that goes far beyond prisons. This is also around drug courts. The carceral state includes monitoring. It includes so many levels that are really critical for people to remember. And we use the war on drugs as a justification for policing. And it's one of the largest funding sources for police departments across the country. So it's really critical that we think in big picture policy ways about how to interrupt the war on drugs in people's lives if we're at all thinking about social work and abolition. Could you advance the slide, please? So I want to take a second to explain Norman Zinberg's 1986 philosophy of how to practice um, 
an of 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 really what I think of as the basics of harm reduction. So this um, model was originally called drug set setting. I've shifted it to risk because I believe that this model, once internalized, can be used to apply to all different things. So if we think of the risk at the thing at the top, and I'm going to use the example of LSD because Zinberg used the example of LSD in his work. And what's interesting is that we've internalized so much of his work without knowing it. So for example, the concept of a bad trip came a lot from Zinberg's work. He was a social scientist, I believe in Chicago. Um, and so he's trying, he's like fascinated by why some people have a good trip and some people have a bad trip. And he studies it and decides that if you put sort of LSD at the top of the triangle here as risk, and you put set, which is the mindset of the individual, and then you think about the setting they're in, then you can really understand the primary basis for what is a good or bad trip? So an example would be if you're taking LSD, let's say on the beach with friends during a butterfly migration, highly specific, not saying anything there, um, then you are very likely to have a good trip. If, for example, you take LSD in a dark basement while you're super depressed, you are very likely to have a bad trip. And so identifying these three pieces gives us a lot of leverage for harm reduction. So one of the examples that I like to give that happened recently during the fentanyl um, <laughs> disaster um, was of... Um, a project in San Francisco that realized that overdoses would be at the top of the triangle and that the place where overdoses were happening the most was public bathrooms. And so what they wanted to do was address the mindset of people who were going into public bathrooms to use by giving them additional safety information, but also through what was on the previous slide, the idea of accompaniment. So they literally sat outside of public bathrooms with naloxone for months on end to reduce the risk of overdose because they would be right outside the door and to help people move through the fear of using in a safer way, which also plays a role um, in overdose, like how you're how you're going into um, how you're going your frame of mind when you're in an overdose situation is really important. And they wanted to create a feeling of safety and trust and community among drug users while at the same time actually interrupting um, an overdose experience. So that's an example of a solution that people came up with. What I like to do is um, ask you to play a little game with me where you are a superhero and uh, you have the power to freeze time. You can't take anything away from an individual. You can't take their age. You can't change the fact that they're smoking weed and you can't change where they are. But what can you do is add something to the situation. So for a young person who's 17 smoking weed in an alley, we may, for example, add tons of water. We may um, 
it says weed, it doesn't say smoking. We may want them to have edibles instead of combustibles. We may um, want um, we may want a ally to walk by and check on them and be a lookout and make sure no one's around. We may want to add a bunch of snacks. We may want to um, make sure they're using at a time of day where that alley isn't highly policed. For example, after 3 p.m., for many people under 18 is a high risk time for policing. There's so many more cops on the street at 3 p.m. with the express intention of catching young people of color doing illegal things. So we want to work with this person around time and think about the highest risk time to do something. So if you advance the slide, you can see that I have a ton of other examples here. So if you think about someone who's 72 practicing self-injury in the bathroom, what strategy would you add to increase that person's safety and survival? Um, one that often gets people stuck is intimate partner violence in a grocery store. And this is an example that came from my own life a couple of years ago where I witnessed um two people having a, a really rough argument in public. And my biggest concern was that a another shopper was going to call the cops. And so I was trying to figure out what to do because I, I there this is such a sticky situation that could lead to violence later. And I decided to go with my strengths as someone who is a mess. And I literally just knocked over um, a display that had a bunch of chips. And so the bags of chips went everywhere right in front of them. And it broke the tension because they looked over at me like I was the mess that I am, which was true. And then they started helping me pick up the chips, but it also drew the attention from the shoppers, from them to me in a way that actually was kind of a successful intervention because I was able to begin a conversation with them as well. And so then we were just like chit-chatting. We checked out together. They went to their car. I don't know what happened later, but I know that the police weren't called and that that moment was diffused. So that's another example. So now I want to talk about <laughs> dilemmas in social work. And Harm reduction presents tons of tension. If you could advance the slide, please. I want to say that um, these dilemmas create tensions that I personally believe have to be a part of the work. I believe that we are often searching to resolve tensions that must be there. I want you to feel sick to your stomach every time you are required to use a mandated reporting. I want you to feel sick to your stomach every time you are forced to hospitalize someone. To me, both of these things are in direct contradiction to harm reduction, but they are both things that are often a function of how social workers have to operate in the world. And I think, I don't think, I firmly believe that those tensions have to exist 
in order for us to find solutions and to stay in check with what our political values and frameworks are. If it stops making us sick, I believe we're burned out and we need to step away from the work. I believe that if we start thinking that we have all of the answers so that the tensions go away, that we've lost our way, actually. Can you advance the slide, please? So tensions in the work, uh, tensions in social work um, are really, um, I'm sorry, I'm having um, a little bit, I can't see what you're seeing. Okay, now I think I'm with you. So um, these are like the main concepts that I see as um, places where social workers struggle the most. So the first is in self-determination. I think that a lot of social workers want to believe that they support people's self-determination. But in reality, there's a lot of liability laws that bind social workers and that bind public health workers to undermining people's self-determination. So for example, forced hospitalization is something that many social workers have to do from time to time, either because someone's suicidal or not taking their psychiatric meds. Undermining that self-determination is a direct contradiction to harm reduction, and it's a direct contradiction to what I believe is abolition work. Um, the other place is this notion of behavior change. Public health has convinced us that harm reduction is a behavior change model. In reality, harm reductionists know that no change is a part of the of harm reduction and is almost the most important part of harm reduction. And most funded harm reduction projects have to indicate a level of behavior change in order to justify their funding. They have to say this person is now using clean syringes. This person is now using condoms. And at the same time, many liberatory harm reduction programs know that that checked box doesn't actually cover all the wide range of things that someone is doing or not doing, and that no change is a really critical part of the whole concept. Um, this gets left out constantly, and I think it's a really big issue. The other dilemma is that I do believe, and in the classes that I teach, and I want to say I am not on faculty at any of those places, I teach one class on harm reduction a year. And that's because I don't really fit in academia, as you can see, I'm not, and I'm not going to fit in academia. But the course that I teach, one of the reasons why people like to take it is because I teach from the perspective that we're going to be working in our own communities, because if we're practicing harm reduction we should be working in our own communities. Um, I don't mean that you have to work in your own community if you're practicing harm reduction. I mean that harm reduction that's filled with social workers, harm reduction that's filled with outreach workers, that of people who do not come from the communities they're working for and from, that's questionable. And that is a tension that is really complicated in the work because of how funding is organized. This next one is something I want to talk about 
um, for a second before we move on. And I want to talk about reformist reform because some of you who've been thinking about abolition know that we make this distinction with reform work where we talk about reform reform, right? And that's like, um, I'm sorry, we talk about reformist reform and non-reformist reform, right? So reformist reform builds the system. So an example of reformist reform is diversion programs, right? Diversion programs build prison abolition, I'm sorry, build prisons, the prison industrial complex. And reformist reform like diversion also leads to things like drug court or leads to things like prostitution court, which again builds the system. Non-reformist reform um, does things like, for example, removing laws. And we need like the removal of laws. For example, um, we need more laws that are um, like that, like the decriminalization campaign that Women with a Vision is running in um, New Orleans and throughout Louisiana that removes the risk of um, arrest for people in the sex trade, right? We need those kinds of decrim campaigns. We need campaigns that undermine the war on drugs that um, help make cannabis legal, right? So that's non-reformist reform. The problem is, is that harm reduction often gets used as an excuse for reformist, reformist reform. So I know many harm reduction programs that wanted diversion money and really felt like diversion was a critical part of harm reduction. I also know many harm reduction programs that wanted other kinds of reformist reform to be in play. Um, like for example, um, the shifting of certain laws without an understanding of how that framework played out for everyone. Um, um, like, for example, we were trying to counter condoms as evidence because condoms as, as evidence was being used against people in the sex trade. But at the same time, those programs were accepting anti-trafficking money. Right. And the anti-trafficking money was building prisons <laughs> was building the prison industrial complex and targeting sex workers. So these tensions are are so difficult. Co-optation, boundaries is another issue. I personally am not licensed because I never felt like I could uphold any of the NASW boundaries because I was only going to be working in my own community. Um, nonprofit policy also undermines relationships. And then this sort of like ongoing collaboration with the state um, that so many of us have to do if we're inside a nonprofit. Next slide, please. So I just have a few more minutes left. Um, and I want to just draw your attention to these next two slides. Um, actually, could you advance it two slides forward? Um, it should say harm reduction helps. Um, that's the first those are the first words, harm reduction helps. Um, so I think um, 
We want to be directed by the individuals. We want to be directed by survivors. One really important thing that gets left out of harm reduction a lot is that it's a survivor-led practice. It's started by and for people who use drugs, who are in the sex trade, who are street-based. It's a survivor-led concept. And we want to be aware of the impact of oppression, racism. We want to respond to not only be trauma informed, but actually respond to the impact of trauma in a daily way. Um, We want to negotiate by and with community when needed. We want to make sure that we're always based in relationship and give people the opportunity to be their best selves every day. Could you advance the slide, please? Um, We also want to make sure that we're always learning practices and strategies from people in the sex trade and street economy and that we're not platforming ourselves either in public health or in social work as experts. We Harm reduction asks us to focus on what we want, and that's also a really critical practice of transformative justice. Can you advance the slide, please? Um, I want to name as we're closing that harm reduction is a resilience model. Can you forward to the slide that has the high heel? I want to say that one of the questions I get asked the most as someone with life experience trading sex for money for survival, who's worked in my own community for years, there's a belief that that means that I'm traumatized. And maybe there's something to be said, although I will never tell you my story. You haven't earned it. I do want to name that the critical way that we interrupt trauma is and move people from trauma to empowerment is by reflecting and emphasizing and mirroring back resilience. Harm reduction gives us the opportunity to engage people and for to allow people to be in charge of whatever the programs, policies, organizing they're doing to be in leadership. And the more we reflect back, the power that people have to make change, and the more we give people, and truthfully, the best harm reduction you can often do is to get out of the way of people who are using drugs and to get out of the way of people in the sex trade. And if you are working in tandem through accompaniment, through allyship, through consensual allyship, then what we need is for people to allow us to be in control of our own choices and reflect back and emphasize our resilience. If you could advance to the last slide, I'm sorry, the next slide, um, it has an I, it says, ask yourself. I think it's really important to for you to ask yourself, because I want to say that I'm also doing this presentation, assuming that we're all survivors watching this and assuming that you're drawn to the work of harm reduction, you're drawn to the work of prison abolition because you are a survivor. I think it's important to ask yourself, how do I fight back and heal on a daily basis? What are the benefits of of this method of resilience? How do you teach this resilience to others? I think that we spend a lot of time trying to understand the impact of intergenerational trauma. And I want to invite us to understand the impact of intergenerational resilience. Can you advance to the last slide? 
the last slide says pledge. And I want to invite you to pledge to take a pledge with me around interrational, intergenerational resilience. And I need you every time you talk about harm reduction, every time you have a conversation about this critical life-saving strategy, about this love letter from our ancestors that you remember and name that harm reduction was started by people in the sex trade, by drug users, by street-based people, by trans people, by activists, by Black, Indigenous, people of color organizers who wanted to reflect our resilience intergenerationally from beyond all the time. They wanted us to remember that we have everything we need to survive in our relationships and in our commitment to getting us all free. And so every time you talk about harm reduction from now on, I ask, that you remember that this was not invented by social workers. This was not invented by public health. This is something that we own fully by our lineage, by our ancestry, and by the mandate that we're working with as people who believe in collective liberation to reflect back our resilience to past, present, and future generations. So thank you very much for being with me for this last hour and 15. And I look forward to some of your questions. Thanks so much, Shira. Um, we have received a bunch of questions from folks in the YouTube chat box. So in the 11 minutes that we have left, I'll feed you one question um, at a time and we'll see where we go. Uh, one question being, how can ideas from harm reduction and, and other abolition movements help inform activists and advocates in the movement to abolish the family regulation? Yeah, so the family the family regulation system is a lot of what this is, um, I think, new and really good language for describing what used to be called child welfare. And so I think like one of the first things we need to do when addressing the family regulation system is to push back really hard in an organized and clear way against mandated reporting. Um, there's a website that um, some folks out of Seattle have started called um, Mand Mandatory Reporting is Not Neutral. It's a link you can drop in the chat that has harm reduction practices for people who are um, contemplating or stuck in jobs or that have mandated reporting. I think that mandated reporting is one of the biggest challenges that we're facing in prison abolition right now, personally, because I think that while we are working on defund and reinvest, that we're reinvesting in social work and that a lot of social work becomes carceral because it has to use the family regulation system or mandated reporting by law. And so we're trapping ourselves. And so we need to address and push back and counter mandated reporting. I want to say this is especially complicated because 
I know from my own lived experience, and many of you probably know from either your lived experience or from the work that you're doing, that horrific violence happens. It happens in families and it happens to children. So I think we have to challenge mandated reporting in those laws while we simultaneously figure out not only how to end violence, but what are these little things, not little, what are these giant overhauls that we need to do to make sure that children are safe and families at the same time that we're working to end mandatory reporting. Thank you. That's that's a perfect answer. Um, and I think this extends from that a little bit. And you were alluding to, to, to some of these points earlier, but I want to ask the question again. What is your best advice or direction to harm reductionists who are also social workers uh, who are beholden to codes of ethics or other responsibilities within their organizations like no tolerance or banning policies or policies around termination? Yeah, so this is one of those situations where you're going to spend a lot of time navigating your tension, like the tension that you're experiencing in this work. And so there's a couple concrete things you can do. Um, the first concrete thing you can do is to consider your licensing and how you feel about being licensed in the first place. Um, the second thing you can do is to think about what your bottom line is. How much money do you have to have in the bank? I don't, you know, people have families, people are supporting multiple people. I, um, in our, in my chosen family system, my job has been incredibly important at sometimes, at sometimes and at other points, other people's job has been more important than mine in terms of finances. And so I think I've always had to have what is my bottom line in mind? What is my savings plan? Is that even possible? I think it's good to know what you'll walk out the door for. I also know that some of the most radical people I know have worked in uh, child welfare, the family regulation system for 50 years, right? That it's possible to maintain abolitionist values, transformative values, um, because sometimes the most important harm reduction that we're doing is interrupting harm from the system. And so if you are strategically placed within a system that's extremely harmful, then I think we have to think in a daily way about what risks we're taking to make those institutions safer for the people who are in them. Again, like some of the most radical people I know have worked in prisons, right? And so while they are arguably expanding the capacity of the prison while they're working in it by being a worker, um, it's super important that someone with an abolitionist framework is closest to the people who are most impacted and also that that person works to undermine the impact of the carceral state while at the same time working inside it. So I do believe it's possible to work inside and outside at the same time. That's not hypocrisy to me, that's strategy. Because I think if we said we're never working inside systems, then we would never have people who are trusted, who have our political frameworks um, to help people who are most impacted and harmed by these systems. So I think your job is important and these contradictions are important. And it's really important that you're there 
And I also understand why sometimes you have to move on and why that could also create um, really dangerous health conditions for you, depending on how your body works with that level of trauma and how your body works with that level of conflict. If that makes sense, I hope it does. Thank you for um, giving folks permission to have an inside strategy. I think a lot of people do feel that conflict about feeling like a sellout or um, feeling like they're working against their own values, even though they're doing their best to hold true to them when with the system. So I think a lot of people on the line need to hear that and um, also needed some some help about thinking about how to maintain strategies to, to maintain their boundaries and, and to do what's best for them. Um, uh, we have a question for someone uh, who is from a community where it it seems like folks may not understand concepts of abolition or concepts even harm reduction. Do you have any um, advice for folks who live in communities where these are not mainstream conversations or when they're talking with people who may not have much of a background to understand these concepts? Well, first of all, that's most places and most people. So I think like the way that harm reduction is, is taught is through modeling. And the way that harm reduction was taught to me was through simple engagement tools. And so I think it's really important to um, not worry about the language of harm reduction or the rhetoric of harm reduction, but to create as many spaces as possible where the actual practice of harm reduction is alive. And if like, for example, you're doing a training on um, something that feels more accessible and relevant to that community. So, um, for example, a more accessible way of entering a conversation about harm reduction could be if you're working with young people talking about body piercing and how you can body pierce without um, causing infection, right? Like that's an kind of like an entry level low charge conversation. And so I would say, what are some of those conversations that could begin to provide spaces for people to have bigger conversations and the smaller conversations and start building on the larger conversations? I don't know what community you're in, but another really critical um, player in the creation of harm reduction was the ball community in New York. And part of how the ball community introduced concepts of harm reduction was not only through, you know, tons of condom distribution, but also voguing itself is an example of harm reduction for violence and conflict, right? Mm -hmm. And so many of the, um, I guess at this point, some of them are my peers, but also elders that I have in the ball community understood and it was very explicitly a solution for problem solving and conflict, right? Like walking it out was a, is a really important part of solving problems. And so I encourage you to think creatively about all the ways that that community is already practicing harm reduction and all of the sort of in adjacent, creative, beautiful, low charge ways that you could invest in conversation and complexity around things. I, I remember a workshop that we used to do at YWEP around the sex trade. And of course, like it's so challenging, like to talk about the sex trade with young people because no one wants to 
admit that level of stigma. Like no one wants to say, yes, I'm this. Like the words sex worker, that's an adult identity based word, right? And that's not, uh, young people don't often use that language to describe what they're doing. So one of the groups that we had was just called, let's talk, it was basically, let's talk about sex and money, right? And we didn't label anything. Just let's have these conversations about the relationship between sex and money. And you better believe most of that conversation was actually about the sex trade, but no one ever named it that. No one ever thought about it like that. And we never once said the words harm reduction. That's so fantastic. That's a, Those are some really, really excellent examples that I hope um, got some folks at home thinking about examples in their own communities. So I want to acknowledge that we have about a minute left, and I wanted to invite you if there were any closing remarks you wanted to make before we signed off. Everyone asking. I want to invite people to think um, strategically and to let go of what people think are the right politic and really begin to think about the right practices. I want us to engage in mistakes. I want us to have permission to make mistakes and to remember where harm reduction comes from, who it's for, and that the the way that we all get free together is by having as much room for the beauty in the mess as we can, that we have to be able to honor all the complexities of who we are. Every incredible movement win I've ever seen has been because drug users, people in the sex trade, people who are street-based were a part of that campaign. And if we can't imagine how to do organizing, how to do social work, how to get free while working with people who are high or trading sex for money, then we have a lot more work to do. So thank you so much for being in this work. I want to say I don't actually believe in selling out. I think that the work that you're doing to dismantle the system while serving the people who are most impacted by it saved my life. So thank you to those of you who make that commitment to be in complexity, to make that commitment to be in the messiness and to be in the duality of what it means to practice liberatory and abolitionist-based social work. Thank you so much, Shira, for all that you shared today. I know I personally learned so much and have so much to reflect upon. And so on behalf of Haymarket and NAASW, I'd like to thank those of you for joining us today and encourage you to tune in to Haymarket for all your future events. Uh, make sure to, to purchase your books at places like Haymarket and some support small bookstores. Um, and on that note, thank you all so much and have a lovely evening. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.